listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, Jack Shaw. Isolation is more about workers and consumers losing their autonomy, losing their freedom. They become enslaved in different ways. One looks more pleasant than the other, but at the end, it's about reducing our options, reducing our freedom. Jack shared his insights into eye slavery, exploring the ways factory workers are oppressed, how notorious corporations build systems of exploitation, and sharing what activists are doing to fight back. This episode was recorded on location in London, England, where Jack was promoting his new book, Goodbye, Eye Slave. Jack, your work is on eye slavery. Could you explain what eye slavery is? Uh, eye slavery, uh, you know, from the word iPhone, iPad. So the eye came from all kinds of ways to call today's uh, smartphone or digital media. But at the same time, I also stands for individualism. Okay, so individual consu- consumerism, that's how I imagine it. And slavery, of course, is about uh, enslavement, about extreme ways of exploitation. This is an attempt to have a, a comparison, but also bring together historical lessons from slavery and anti-slavery movements uh, to today's digital media and efforts to improve the world of digital media today. But as a more analytical concept, you know, there is the manufacturing idea slave, people who are enslaved because they do production. So this is sometimes I call eye slavery along the assembly line. So especially Chinese workers who make not only our iPhones, but also Samsung's, any kind of digital gadgets today. So this is called manufacturing eye slave. And a second mode is called manufactured eye slave. So these are people who spend lots of time. So this is the consumption mode. Scholars like Terry Nova call them free labor. People who are addicted to digital media usage. So in cities like London or Hong Kong, so we have lots of people who lost their personal freedom because of too much addiction to digital device. So it's essentially, this this also is a equally important part. You know, slavery works in the consumption mode in the data mine as much as in the assembly line. So you're both an academic and an activist. How do those two things work together? Well, I was trained actually of a more of a traditional type of uh, social scientist, uh, which should, should not have too much work, uh, you know, overlap with activism. Although when I think back, actually this is, uh, when I was a PhD student, I feel very grateful. I had the opportunity to work with Manuel Castells, very established social theorist. And he used to tell me that no matter how good is your sci- social science research, okay, it will not help with your activism because it's political decision, political will. Okay, so the two things are separate. But then I was also, when I was a PhD student, I was in, uh, I spent six years in Los Angeles. I was uh, with a group called Metamorphosis. We went into ethnic minority communities and to observe, to study, but also to help ethnic minorities from African American to Armenian, from uh, Korean to Chinese, Mexican and uh, Central American community also improved. Back then was was mostly uh, radio, print media, okay, church-based okay, communication. So I, I think I also had some influence from there. But the, the real change that I started calling myself a scholar slash activist was 2009. That was the year when I, when I did lots of uh, hospital visits. 
Okay, in Shenzhen, okay, the industrial area next to Hong Kong, which is probably the center of electronic hardware today. Now people refer to Shenzhen as the Silicon Valley of hardware. But back then, 2009 was still not called the Silicon Valley of hardware yet, but it was already having lots of、uh, work injuries. Every year, 40,000 fingers are cut or crushed. Or smashed when they produce a、uh, goose for the world. Every other Saturday, I would be in the hospital. I would visit these、uh, injured workers. Most of them lost their fingers. So that's the time I realized the world of digital media is too problematic.、Uh, it's such a problem that we only look at these things and try to understand them, not to change it. So, slavery is、uh, one of the terms I I picked up from activist campaign and then further develop it、uh, from the luxury of university environments,、uh, referring back to history, to global developments, but then contribute back to the activist、uh, community as a scholarly input that hopefully will be helpful in unforeseen ways. Well, it's not just your scholarly in- input. You've had direct run-ins with. Foxconn, the company that makes these digital devices, could you explain some of those run-ins that you've had? Yes,、uh, in two thousand nine, when I went to the hospital,、uh, these are typically four or five story buildings. Half of that building would be called hand injury or bone injury section. This hand surgery, bone surgery, are almost exclusively workers who lost their fingers. And if you talk to those workers, the、uh, Foxconn was the number one place where they got injured. Maybe one third, okay, because there are many other factories. Foxconn was by far the largest, okay, which also they they produce more injury because of the sheer number of their their workforce. Two thousand nine was I was doing this along with one NGO, one labor NGO. The name was Tiny Grass. Tiny Grass people took me into this hospital, and then I was、uh, helping them out. So that was I, I was really just just shocked. One challenge,、uh, if you study social problem, okay, is、uh, where can you find working class people who have time to talk to you. If you are working class, then you are very busy making ends meet, and then you don't have luxury to sit down to talk to someone. But then hospital is actually a place where, you know, you have to, you have lots of,、uh, you know, time to kill. Okay, and you are very lonely. Okay, many of these are young kids who are afraid to tell tell their family that they lost their fingers. Right, because their family would be heartbroken. So many, most of them are very lonely, and so、uh, so that's、uh, how I started.、Uh, but then、um, uh, in 2010 was the Daily Mail. Okay,、uh, invented the term Foxconn Suicide Express. Within five months,、uh, there are fifteen,、um, 16 Foxconn workers committed suicide. I was in、uh, I was in Taiwan as a visiting professor at the time, but then uh, my colleague uh, Pun Nai uh, started a twenty university activist. Okay, all of them are、uh, scholar activists. You know, twenty universities from Hong Kong, mainland China, and Taiwan. So I was I joined the, that network when I was in Taiwan. And so I went to. It happens to be the annual press conference, the most important news event for Foxconn. Foxconn's main headquarter was in、uh, Taipei. Okay, and I happened to be in Taipei、uh, during that period, so I, I joined Taiwanese activists, and and many of them are like me. Okay, are activist scholars, and so we demonstrate in front of Foxconn headquarters, and、uh, 
Uh, I even collected poetry because when the suicide happened, many worker poets in mainland China would write poetry. So we gathered 20 poems from mainland China and we, we had a public reading of those poetry while they have their stockholder uh, you know, event inside the main headquarter. So, so those were the things we were uh, doing. I think, indeed, you know, this book, Isolary, ha- has a lot to do with Foxconn, okay? because the, the term, like I said, Isolate was the campaign uh, name. Okay? It, was, it was just called the Isolate campaign after the Suicide Express in uh, 2010. And it, it built on this 20 university network. And then SACOM was the Hong Kong-based labor NGO. SACOM stands for Students and Scholars Against Corporate Misbehavior. SACOM was a central central node for this 20 university network. SACOM basically uh, published things into English, okay, but most of the research for uh, Foxconn was around that time. So I've been keeping working on Foxconn since then. Okay, Every year I would take students to the Foxconn neighborhood and monitor Foxconn, of course, you know, through news through other means and now we are having uh, after I published this book Sakam actually invited me to be uh, on their board. From a methodological perspective how do you work with your students to study the work of Foxconn? Do they see you as a, as a threat or do they just allow you to, to do your academic research and they don't see it as a threat to their bottom line as a business? They definitely see me and uh, our network as a threat. Before 2010, before Foxconn, Sacom already worked on Disney, already worked on other major uh, multinational corporations, and they were allowed to go into the factory to investigate, to do work from inside that factory as well. So in 2010, we actually met a representative of Foxconn. Okay, we said, we want to go inside your factory. They actually, they were kind enough to meet us. But then that never, they never uh, allow us or any other independents to go inside. So still now, Foxconn is guarded by high secrecy. Not just a researcher, but even even the official union cannot go in their, their factory as they like. So Foxconn still is treated as a very secret organization. So we tried okay, to go inside overtly, but without success. We did not have uh, permission from the company to go inside. So what we did for several years was to send student volunteers. We, of course, will have to train them before. So that we have students going inside Foxconn covertly. Undercover as workers. Yes, as workers. <laughs> this is. Yeah. This how, do, is, how do you, as a university, sign off the fact that you're going to send undergraduates or postgraduate uh, students to come work? Not, in a, not uh, undergrad. Most of them are postgrads. Yeah. Right, okay. But actually, in East Asia, if you know the the history of labor movements in South Korea and in in Hong Kong as well, South Korea was on a much larger scale. Okay, there was a whole g- a generation of student activists who go embedded on the floor uh, sh- shop floor. Some of them even died okay, in, in that process. So the, the university, of course, cannot uh, sign you know, as, a, as a formal, you know, I don't know whether it's called IRB. You know, in, in, in the U.S., it's impossible. But even in, in the U.S., I know, for example, Harvard Business School, they would send their uh, Harvard Business School student to some assembly line to experience assembly line work. So that's possible in the business school, you know, to train better business managers, okay, for the okay, supply chain, 
and so they they have to understand how things uh, works. So that was possible. So but for the students who want to go and work at Foxconn, what does that training look like before they make that decision to become an embedded researcher? So this is something we did between 2010 and 2014. Actually, uh, we did uh, five consecutive labor studies summer uh, school. It's one month long, and uh, we admit students who have to persuade us that they are interested in labor studies and they already have done something as students okay association or they're they've, they've already reading and maybe practicing okay by themselves in different parts of china and then we, we would have them together for one month we will start from reading marks but also you know uh, talking about what are the things to do not to do all right and uh, how to blend in workers so right? what are some of those things that you you train them to do and not to do and how do they blend in how do they learn to blend in well, one thing, for example, I would tell them as basic things as how you dress. What, what, what do you wear? Worker would usually wear darker clothes and no high heels. Okay, it's as basic as that. More important is also about how to take notes. Uh, when students start, they like to have their notepad. Okay, it's completely off limits. Okay, if you go in there, the best way is to make full use of your mobile phone. You are undercover. And of course, we will teach them about ethics. Okay, this is very essential. So we go undercover, not just to find a scoop so that we can become famous reporter. We go there for the only single reason is because there's something of major public interest. We need to know what's going on and what's going wrong along the assembly line. And that's something all the, the world should know the reality. We are there to find out what's the reality. And without going undercover, there's no other alternative. We already tried other options. And actually, Foxconn was opened for only one single day in June, if I can remember it right, in June 2010 to the media. All the other times, even now, okay, Foxconn is still guarded by high secrecy. So we are there to find out what's going on. So to talk to uh, workers, okay, and usually they, this won't be too long. Also, we do not send students into the factory as individuals. We send them into the factory in, in small groups. I sometimes went undercover, but I'm too old because the workers are all in their late teens or early 20s. So I would be uh, hang out in the neighborhood. So the, another very important thing to understand this monstro factory, you know, Foxcom, okay, it, uh, the highest point according to uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, okay, is uh, 1.4 million people. Right, just one, you know, the, 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 all the employee it has. And the, the largest campus is the way they call their factory facility. It's called Longhua. And that area has 400,000 people, just one factory facility. So half of the worker would, would live inside, you know, the, the dormitories. But the other 200,000 people live outside. So there's no problem for me to sit in the, we call it 大排档, okay, it's like street food, you know, hawker center, okay. I just sit there and then worker can talk to me. So some of my interview were done here because guards came to me, you know, and talked to me, right? And so, so we can, we can sit outside, we can do, we do survey outside. And sometimes they, they think I'm so old, look, look older. So they think I'm, I came from a special monitor service, okay, very high level to, maybe I came from Taipei to monitor what's going on. So not only do they do workers fill in our questionnaire, they even wrote on the back of the questionnaire a little essay about how things should be improved, you know, in this factory, because very seldom do Foxconn collect worker voices. So yes, so we use multiple methods when it suits the context. 
I have personally interviewed low-level managers as well. But then for the high-level management, okay, uh, we, we collect all their press release, how Foxconn had a major argument with the official uh, union in Beijing, all right, and we, we collect all those things, and then we piece things together. So once you've identified the issue and you realize that it's a systemic issue, what are some of the solutions? So how do you enable workers to also be activists what sorts of solutions do you suggest i think there are several things several answers okay first thing is the quote-unquote ordinary workers do not want to be activists is there a reason why is one thing is their workers trying to have their ends meet Okay, or they're very young, they go to Foxconn, they came from rural China to see the world. Maybe to use a slightly jargon language, okay, this is a typical neoliberal subject. When they came to Foxconn, they already had the mindset to strive for individual success, to try to get more material wealth, and then try to become another consumer, you know, a successful consumer. You are what you buy, like what they have been seeing on TV. Most of these workers, when they grew up, they've never seen labor movements, okay, activists on TV. Or, you know, they, they don't have activists around themselves, many, many of them. So that's the quote-unquote normal worker. But like any normally functioning capitalist society in Hong Kong or in London, okay, most people are not activists. They're part of the system. But uh, it's not uncommon, okay, when they have a breakdown, like work injury could be one case, uh, a vocational disease, or in other cases, people who cannot have wages, you know, paid, okay, they basically they are subject to the most blatant form of uh, wage theft. So they become activists, you know, because they have no other choice. Around 2009 was also the time of global financial crisis. About 30 million people, migrant workers, lost their jobs. So now they have, they have the luxury of additional time to think about changing the, the system. Why they have worked so hard, but they can, still cannot climb up the, the ladder okay, of social mobility promised to them. Okay, so that's when the neoliberal sub subjectivity start to break down. My attempt to write this book is one of many other attempts to provide workers with these tools. But then it's really up to the worker herself or himself to decide whether they want to use these tools. You know, this is a lesson we learned from Leninism, is that you impose on other people what they should think about. All they believe in the past is false consciousness, believe in me. But then in that sense, you lost the sense of popular democracy. You know, I'm a socialist in that sense, being a socialist without being authoritarian. So there are lots of creativity. Once workers realize the problem is the system is going wrong, and then they have been creative in their own way. Like just now I mentioned they wrote poetry. Who in the world still write poetry today? But when Foxconn workers were committing suicide, all the poets came from factory zones in different parts of China, or they were domestic helper. Okay, they, or they were construction worker, or they were dock workers. So they write poetry. And then these became new resources, cultural resources for uh, labor activism. Oftentimes they write better po poems than me. Okay, even though I teach in the Chinese universities. So my role is not just uh, there to enable workers, but also enable myself uh, as a better listener, 
as a better observer so that we can learn from existing okay, worker activism as limited as they are, but then magnify what successful worker bloggers have been doing. For example, I have organized physical meeting for worker bloggers so that they can exchange their best practices. So the onus shouldn't just be on the workers though, should it? It should also be on the consumers. And I know you quite openly say that you were one of those consumers at one point waiting for the next iDevice, whether it was the iPad or the new iPhone. And I just wondered, what is it that makes us so complacent as a consumer about this form of modern slavery? Uh, I think this goes back to the same uh, neoliberal subject. This is part of the uh, neoliberalism, okay, is liberalism, but uh, on the surface. Liberalism should be about giving people more choice, more freedom. But then neoliberalism is actually you only have more choices in the department store, in the iStore, iShop. Okay, you only have more choices in the predefined way. And those predefined way are by the resourceful and the powerful. And usually these two come together as the elite decision makers. The uh, consumerism is quintessential part, probably even closer to the audience of this program. Okay, we are programmed to think about, you know, the next device as being cool. At the same time, we most people would think of the previous i i device is uncool. Okay, but when you when you think about the new cool, this is the uh, theme of built-in obsolescence when we lost our uh, you know freedom because our mindset is being led, being being programmed at the political economy level. The consumerist neoliberal uh, subject also gets into the mind of Chinese workers as well. Now I go to factory zone compared to seven years ago, very few people would be able to afford for authentic iPhones, but now increasing uh, them are using authentic phones. They are, they are in the same kind of system. Sometimes you would, when you talk to workers, they even glorify the myth of the next iPhone even more than average urban consumers. Do you tell a story in the book of someone selling their organs for the next iDevice? Yes, that's a very pathetic and saddening story. It's actually a 13-year-old or maybe 15-year-old so he's a teenager. He was still in secondary school and uh, he's, his parents, both of them are textile workers in the second tier city in China. Okay? And then he sold his kidney to buy an iPhone and iPad. I think it was uh, 2011. In the process, he used social media. He used QQ. This is the Chinese equivalent of Facebook. He used that to find out the, the person who wanted to buy his kidney. And then he he was promised that it will just be you know like taking one of your hair. Okay, and you will you you will have no problem. You know no no medical complication afterwards. But actually, he he lost uh, you know his uh, ability because of the condition of the transplantation. So yes, so so that's a very uh, sad story. So I think in China, probably other societies of the global South in India, Latin America, Philippines, I wouldn't be surprised that some working class, especially young people, would be even more captured, more addicted to 
these uh, digital media, you know, to these latest gadgets, even more fanatic than what we would see around us. You know, the iPhone fans in London or in Hong Kong. There, there's even more scarcity. The neoliberal subject works by creating false markets, and then people would perceive, even though there's, it could be produced in much larger quantity, but then it's perceived as being very scarce. That's where the the social status of consumption, especially when it's not need-based consumption. This is to show off. Okay, so that came out even stronger in places like working class societies, working class China. Maybe this still works in working class UK, I'm not sure. So you've tried to capture all of these different forms of eye slavery under this catch-all term, AppCon. Could you explain AppCon? I, I developed this work bilingually. It started as a Chinese term to put Apple and Foxconn together. When it started, you know, the Chinese term was called Kong. So it's more like AppleCon. Okay, A-P-P-L-E-C-O-N-N. So it's Apple and Foxconn together. But later on, when I was writing this in English, if we look in, inside Samsung, Okay, or Xiaomi. Xiaomi is the Chinese brand uh, mobile phone, smartphone, uh, much cheaper. But the business model, the way they produce these phones is also in Foxconn. Samsung has its own assembly line, Okay, not in Foxconn. But if you look at Samsung's problems of worker suicide, of vocational disease, it's almost exactly the same. So in English, I simplified Applecom into Appcom, A-P-P-C-O-N-N, as a way to talk about all this app economy, okay, smartphone. So it, it has to do with the high-end design, the research and development in the Silicon Valley, in the case of Apple or even Google, I would, I would say, okay, or Samsung or Xiaomi. They work actually hand-in-hand hand. without Foxconn or similar assembly line. There would, wouldn't be so many devices there wouldn't be so many crazy fans. AppCon is basically my way to call the structural forces that creates eye slavery. Eye slavery is more about workers and consumers losing their autonomy, losing their freedom. They become enslaved in different ways. One looks more pleasant than the other, but at the end it's about reducing our options, reducing our freedom. AppCom is the structural forces, works at the global level. Right from the Silicon Valley to Shenzhen, from South Korea to different parts of the Samsung Empire. Okay, there's actually a South Korean documentary called Empire of Shame, talking about vocational disease. Okay, so this is a global multinational. Appcom is also closely tied to financial capitalism. So that's the root of uh, neoliberal capitalism, right? So it's financialization and all this. Why no, nobody is asking why we have to have a new generation of smartphone every year. It's because of the annual cycle, short-term cycle of the financial market. Basically, AppCom is the, is the world system of gadgets, but the gadgets not only as hardware, but also as software, as PR industry, as ways of cultivating this desire uh, for these devices. Ex- exactly. So the not, not need-based, but want-based uh, desire. To a degree, some of these devices are then being used and social media is then being used as a form of resistance in a kind of weird irony. I know that you've looked at people who are using social media as a form of activism to reveal what's going on to the rest of the world. I wonder if you could speak to some of those examples. 
Oh, there are lots of examples. First is uh, because uh, actually we had debates among our activists or scholars or students, you know, whether we want to boycott all this and just stay with our old Nokias, right? But then that's a dead end, at least among my colleagues and friends and comrades. So we, we, we need to use this digital media to talk to the consumers, to the workers. The workers are smartphone users themselves. So there are many global campaigns, okay, including... I slave that campaign actually used the same color of the like the book uh, these are the original uh, Apple iPod colors the famous advertisements okay with the music lover okay freedom but then so they use the same color so this is what we call memes it's actually a collaboration between Sacom and uh, NGO and including Greenpeace and also Bread for All okay in Switzerland right so it's global campaign and at uh, the work uh, you know um, among workers Okay, so we have poetry, I already mentioned that. Okay, there's still a thriving poetry tradition, which we do not see in other upper class, middle class populations in China. They write poetry about their work. And then the poetry would become uh, multimodal. Okay, so if it's a really good poetry, chances are there's another worker band. Okay, I work with worker mu musicians. They would make melody. Okay, they would transform the poem into a, into a song. Song. And and then they would there will be live performance. They use th those uh, songs in their people's theater, worker theater performance. So they they string them together into an hour long or 90 minutes theatrical performance. So there are uh, all kinds of creative practices. And uh, oftentimes these are by by the more artistic individuals and groups. Another um, important instance is when there are major confrontations. Like I said, ordinarily workers would be too busy. But sometimes, okay, we see that when there's a recession, like the global financial crisis, we see that uh, usually when uh, right before a uh, factory go public before their IPO, the initial public offering, the company would be downsizing. They would be doing all kinds of cost-casting. Yeah, and then that's the moment when workers start to realize they have to have a protest strike. And sometimes they would use the most creative forms of insurgency. And my favorite example is from 2009. This was a shoe factory. It's called 360 Degree. It's a Chinese brand making athletic footwear and apparels. So when 360 Degree was preparing for its IPO in New York. It was the financial crisis, and then the, the company tried to become even more you know, lean and mean. So there were thousands of workers. This was in the province called uh, Fujian, in a small town called Jinjiang. But then half of the town was working for this factory. So the workers started a, a strike. And what factory did was they bought off local officials and then used riot police and thugs to crack down on workers very bloody crackdown outside of the media attention. There were also local media censorship, so pe most people did not know it until things went dramatic. Probably my most favorite example about using digital media to have an in insurgency by workers is that the shoe factory workers formed solidarity with hackers. Okay, we know China also has a sizable working class software programmer. They're not all in India. In China, we have you know a small army of software programmers who do. I I call them gray color workers. 
right? So these are people who do tedious coding, programming, but making very low salary. And then they were probably my, my suspicion, okay? I, I, I haven't really been able, because the place is rather far away from Hong Kong, so I, I've never done interview. But this is what my suspicion is, is that the shoe factory workers have maybe have cousins or brothers and with the uh, software programmers. So what they did is they, they came together, and what they did is they used a skill called search engine optimization. What they did is basically they hacked Google. So when anyone searched 360 degree using Google, they could not find the, the financial PR release from the company. What they find is thousands of pictures about bloody crackdown. So this was, uh, by my account, is probably the first factory worker and hacker alliance. And then they had an ambush. I had a, this is probably the first cyber ambush in, against capitalism in the history of global labor movements. So it happened in a special time, uh, you know, of 2009, and it shows the creativity of 21st century labor activism in China and in the world. There are probably similar things in India, in Latin America that I haven't heard, but, but this is one thing that came to our attention that as scholars and as activists, there are so many new things because the uh, uh, neoliberal capitalism, including the digital media reincarnation of capitalism, are endlessly in a novel in the way they exploit people. But at the same time, this is my lesson. Okay, I learned from uh, history and from my own activist work is that the ways workers resist capitalism is also infinitely creative using this form of hacking, for example, right, as, as one of many uh, ways to, to use digital media uh, against the digital capitalism, against uh, slavery. And you said that uh, it was 1.4 million workers are employed in these factories. What happens if automation solves the i-slavery problem, but also makes the need for these workers obsolete? What's going to happen in that scenario? Well, I know uh, in the West, for example, my best friend, okay, one of my best friends, uh, Adam Greenfield, wrote about automation, and uh, he's very genuinely worried about, uh, about that. I actually have a slight disagreement. I had talked to him about this already, but then uh, at least in the in case of the Chinese capitalism, Okay, labor-intensive uh, and also highly flexible capitalism. Okay, automation works more like a threat that never really materialized. For example, in 2010, when I was protesting outside Foxconn headquarters, we, we could not go inside. We, we were outside demonstrating. The meeting of the stockholders an annual conference was on the third floor of that building. But then on the first floor of that building, there was already a fully automated lab. There was all robots making electronics. And uh, Terry Kuo, the owner of Foxcom, actually bragged about it. Okay, we, already, we can already do without workers. So Foxcom has the most advanced robotics. I, I am trained uh, social science in the, in the old way. I only try to look at the past and present and make sense of them. I don't want to predict in the future. But at least so far, uh, if you look at the actual number of workers that Foxcom have uh, employed in China and their robotic technology, Foxcom robotic has been coming more and more advanced. But at the same time, they have been hiring more and more Chinese workers. Like I mentioned, at the high point, this was three, point, three years ago, Foxcom had 
1.4 million. That's the last time I had, uh, you know, a Wall Street Journal reported on the total number of workers Foxcom have in China. But then uh, in 2010, when the Suicide Express happened, Foxcom had less than 1 million people. So while Foxcom have been making more advanced robotics, industrial robotics, it has not you know, hired less workers. It has increased its number of workers. The, the, the answer, actually, if we know how Foxconn's exploitation works, it's actually rather easy to explain. Because workers can be laid off, workers can be subject to wage theft, but uh, robotics cannot. You cannot lay off ro- industrial robots, you know, because to maintain a robot, you have to have the electricity, you have to have, you know, the technicians, okay? And if you don't have that, that robot will stop working. So you cannot reduce the cost. So robot is actually a fixed asset, okay, in terms of the model production. But workers, human workers are flexible, and you can have the, them earning small amount of money and then they buy the things you sell them and then the money come back to you. So far, I would be probably sounding maybe too dismissive to uh, people who worry a lot about automation. But so far, uh, robotics and the threat of robots works more like a, another way to discipline workers, to say, if you don't work hard enough, if you don't accept the horrible conditions, then we'll have robots do your job. So far, that's what I have been observing and, uh, you know, in the Chinese context. To some degree, it's the fact that the capital outlay to actually replace the workers with robotics is so high that they'd see a short-term return on that investment and that wouldn't make the shareholders happy in the short term. It might preserve their business for the long term, but it won't mean that they're making the same sorts of dividends that they did last year. You're, you're spot on. You know, so right. it's the logic of financial capitalism to make short term, you know, because robots is a long term uh, investment. Actually, uh, even before Foxconn, I have an older book called uh, Working Class Network Society, 2009, uh, MIT Press, where I talk about the case of BYD. Today, uh, BYD in China would be is a company okay known for its electric cars, almost like the Chinese version of Tesla. But ten years ago, BYD was the world's largest uh, mobile phone battery producer. Right? And if you look at how BYD succeeded before BYD started to enter the market for mobile phone battery, it was 2002-2003. Before that point, 90% of the world's mobile phone batteries were made by two highly automated Japanese companies. One is Sanyang, the other is Sharp. And uh, Sanyang and Sharp were already using, using industrial uh, robots. And then they would make all the batteries for Motorola and Nokia. And they've been occupying 90% of the global market. Within two or three years, BYD got half of the world market share. What they did is they used human labor and in a very flexible way. And what also happened was uh, because the cycle, okay, so this goes back to the uh, building obsolescence. The cycle of mobile phone is becoming shorter and shorter. You know, Motorola and uh, Nokia actually designed their devices to be durable. Adam Greenfield told me, you know, at Nokia, they used to put mobile phone into washing machines to try to make it work longer. The battery also is actually a crucial part of our mobile phone that needs to be updated. Once you update your 
your screen, your your software. So the battery design used to be only need to because the uh, the cycle for pre-smartphone mobile phones were longer duration. So it actually make more sense for batteries. Okay, once you you have you have your robots. Okay, the robots can work for let's say eighteen or even two years, eighteen months or two years. All right, and then you you don't have to retool your your robot. They can make the same battery. Okay, for two years, and then your investment come back. But then with the shift into a smartphone, okay, not only is there a, a new model of smartphone, usually not just for Samsung, iPhone, or all the Chinese brands as well, okay, you, not only you have a new smartphone with a, with larger okay screen, higher demand on battery, but even for example for your iPhone Seven, the iPhone Seven in the first three months is the the production process for making is the iPhone Seven may be different from the next three months because they already have big data, okay, to calculate how iPhone has been working, what has has to be changed. Sometimes it was changed in the wrong way. That's how Samsung got bust, okay, a few months ago, right? So the 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 manufacturer procedure become much more flexible. And when they design it, they, they never think about the worker side. So if you have to retool your robots every three months, it it does not make economic sense. Okay. So but human beings, okay, it's actually are easier to reprogram. Exactly. <laughs> so so I, I call them programmable labor. Right in in that sense, that works much better for the financial capitalism. So logic. general purpose machines, we've already got them. They're called humans, and they're they're easier exactly. to retrain every three months and exactly and build a brand new robot for a very specific specialized task. I, I very quickly, want to talk about this. You mentioned it at the beginning. This second form of eye slavery, the eye slavery that every single person who uses a social media platform is under the ability for these platforms to actually generate wealth from our free labor, from our likes and from our engagement and from our clicks and from our shares. To what degree can something be done to make people aware that they are the product of those platforms? Uh, one thing in, in Western society, as much as Hong Kong, okay, is uh, the notion of privacy. Okay, this is a is an easy way to start to raise awareness about you know how the platform owners are exploiting us. But that's like I said, it's a it's an easy and common way to start. But that that should not be the end. The solution, because of the discussion, as as much as I understand about privacy, is still very much uh, individualistic. Uh, notion. So there will be other alternative. One thing I've been spending more time on these days, okay, is uh, called platform cooperativism. Okay, so this is uh, as collectives, people come together and uh, own their apps together, okay, and have developed their governance structure among themselves, negotiate. So in Hong Kong, we have many interesting examples, giving free rides to other people. Right, and uh, so basically, it's Uber without being owned by a private okay corporation. But then these are people who help each other. Usually, they are they live in the same community. Okay, is the community is called Taipo, and uh, next to my university campus, and they have developed their own app. 
right? And then they, in, in addition to giving each other rights, they also have their weekend yoga classes together, free, uh, you know, session yoga sessions. So, uh, so you exchange a ride for a yoga right, session. Right. So it is truly the sharing economy. Exactly. Without the exchange of capital. The, the, the genuine uh, uh, sharing economy. Yeah. And another uh, of my favorite example is, uh, is a senior care. In Hong Kong, even though Hong Kong is uh, advanced capitalist society in many ways, but in, uh, in terms of uh, maximum uh, work hours, okay, Hong Kong is very backwards. Probably the only post-industrial industrial society without legal limits. So in Hong Kong, McDonald can ask their workers to work 20 hours a day if the worker is willing. Of course, they're, they're very poorly paid. People want to do more uh, overtime work. So, the, so it ends up if the parents work for McDonald, okay, working class jobs in Hong Kong, they won't be able to take senior, the grandparents, okay, to hospital. So this was a group started as a single mother and they initially was just a hotline with Excel so that they can help each other because some of them are laid off then they can help their neighbors to take the senior, okay, citizen to hospital. But now they have their own app, okay, it's called Around Neighborhoods. It's this kind of grassroots practices. It will be giving us a fuller awareness and also it's not just awareness, it's actually workable solutions beyond the platforms. So they, they oftentimes they started in Facebook, but then they ended up having their own apps beyond. And they still use Facebook, but they are not uh, constrained by Facebook. So ultimately, the, this could potentially be at least one of the solutions to engineer sustainable change. Definitely, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Jack for sharing his thoughts and some of the ways we can work to overcome the injustice and oppression that exists within our global economic system. You can find out more by purchasing Jack's book, Goodbye, I Slave, a manifesto for digital abolition. Proceeds from this book go directly towards a Congolese NGO set up to help improve the working conditions for miners extracting coltan, the mineral used in many of our digital devices. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.